This is the Go Pack Podcast with your host, Jessica Curtis. Welcome to the Go Pack Podcast. Congresswoman Stephanie Bice, Colorado Senate Minority Whip Paul Lundeen, and pollsters Adam Geller and David Winston. They'll all be joining us today for our second episode. Congresswoman Stephanie Bice, so great to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. So for everybody listening, um, Congresswoman Bice was a Go Pack emerging leader in 2015, nominated for her work in the Oklahoma State Senate, where she served as Assistant Majority Floor Leader and the Chair of the Senate Finance committee. She's continued to excel as a member of Congress, even being elected by her peers to serve as freshman class president and serve as a member of the Republican whip team. So Stephanie, today we're going to discuss efforts to take back the House and historic recruitment with women by the GOP. More Republican women are running for Congress than ever before for the 2022 cycle. Through EPAC, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik has led the national effort to increase the number of Republican women elected to Congress this year. In 2022, 11 of the 15 seats that went red were won by EPAC-endorsed Republican women who have EPAC and the Republican Party successfully recruited and mentored women candidates running for office this year, Stephanie. Well, it's a great question. And I think that it's probably wise to take a step back and look at the 2018 election cycle. Um, You heard it referred to as the blue wave. You saw a lot of seat flip um, Democrat that were traditionally in red districts, Oklahoma 5, the seat that I hold now was one of those. And I think it was a real wake-up call for conservative women because there was a narrative that election cycle that women were Democrats. And, uh, you know, there are so many of us that hold conservative values. And I think that we finally woke up and realized that we're going to have to put ourselves out there. And so you saw a record number of women in the 2020 election cycle file for congressional seats. But more importantly, organizations like EPAC engaged in primary races. And that's really not been the case in previous election cycles. I think Elise and others recognize the importance of engaging early with women. And because of that, the 2020 freshman class of the 117th Congress elected more women than had ever been elected before. And we now have a over 30 female Republican members of Congress. That is amazing. So as a wife and a mother of two daughters, what advice would you give to other mothers who are considering a run for public office? Yeah, that's really, to be honest, the reason that I ran originally. I was approached about running for the Oklahoma State Senate back in 2014. And the reason that I was approached by a former colleague about running was because I was a female. And he said, look, uh, we don't have enough women serving in the state legislature here in Oklahoma, but overall, and we need more women because we need that perspective. We need that insight. You know, we think about things differently, not any better, just different than our male colleagues do. And that that um, perspective and voice is important. So uh, being the mother of two daughters myself, I thought it was a really great opportunity for me to do something sort of big and bold and outside the box. So I ran for the um, state Senate seat that I held for six years. And when this congressional seat opportunity presented itself, um, it was a family conversation. And certainly I advise those individuals that are considering a run that your family has to be 100% on board because if not, it makes it very difficult. But my husband and my daughters are very much excited about the opportunity and um, knew that it would be a chance for me to make a real difference for Oklahoma. And so we put our name on the ballot and off we went. And you just continue to blaze your trail. 
Congresswoman Stefanik recently, within the last year or so, had a had a baby, cute little baby. I I follow her on Instagram. Sam's um, great. Sam, yeah, he is, he's, he's, he's adorable. To, he really is, and she's brought him to the um to the Capitol so many times. I feel like you know he's kind of growing up with all of us, which is kind of fun. I love that. She has said that being a mother or becoming a mother has made her a more effective leader. Do you agree with that assessment? And and how has being a mom impacted your leadership style? Yes, it certainly does. And I think you look at your children and think, you know, I'm doing this because I'm fighting for their future. And certainly Sam being a baby, she's looking at his eyes thinking, I have to do this so that Sam grows up in a world that is free and, and fair and um, it holds those conservative values that we um, we you know, aspire to or have. And so I think for me personally, it was an opportunity for me to really, you know, show my girls not to be afraid to do something big and bold and outside the box, but also, you know, find these issues that whether it's healthcare or education or jobs, the economy, these are all things that are going to impact them. My girls are a little older, one in college, one getting ready to go to college. So they're getting ready to venture out into the world on their own. And I want to make sure that, you know, they're set up for success. And if there's something that as a mother I can do to make that happen as a member of Congress, then I certainly, you know, want to take that opportunity. Absolutely. What races will you closely be following during the midterms this year? Any, any, uh, <laughs> any ones you got a special eyeball on? Yeah, there's so many great races. It, you know, I will say, you know that you bec- become sort of a politico um, when you start watching your own um, state and municipal races. There were some municipal races in Oklahoma that I was watching pretty closely um, to see kind of what the outcomes were. So, you know, you've kind of devolved into that political junkie uh, mentality when you're watching local races. But on the national level, there's so many incredible uh, women that are running. Jen Kagan's out of Virginia is running and has a, you know, just a great story. Erin Houchin, who actually is a uh, GOPAC emerging leader yes, in my is. class that I am very excited for, really hoping that um, we can get her across the finish line. Texas has some fantastic women too, Monica De La Cruz. There, there's just a lot of them. And you know, this is an election cycle, I think, that's going to be like no other. You saw what happened last year with Glenn Youngkin in the Virginia race. And I think it was a real testament to women. And I say that because I went to the um, Yunkin watch party. And what was amazing was the number of women there. And as I walked the line speaking to all of them, it was very clear to me that they were fired up. They were frustrated. They had had enough of some of the Democrat policies. They were frustrated for their kids and the school closures and virtual learning and masks. And they'd had enough. And, you know, when moms get fired up, they take action. And it was pretty clear that 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 was one of the reasons that Glenn won. And I think you're going to see that same sort of fire and mentality this next election cycle. You know, we're getting hopefully on the backside of COVID. But I think there are some real issues that are going to get women a little more engaged in the political process than maybe they had been before. For sure. How about a final thought for our listeners before we let you go today? You know, I think what I would um, encourage folks to do is just um, you know, share your voice when you're talking to friends and family out there, remind them that elections are coming, remind them the consequences of elections. I think there may be some voters out there that voted for Joe Biden because they didn't necessarily love the, the, the demeanor of uh, President Trump, but I think they have voters remorse now. And so, you know, making sure that you're engaging with your friends and neighbors, churchgoers about, you know, these upcoming elections, I think is incredibly important because we want to take back the House in November. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll have you back on in November and we can um, celebrate a landslide of victories. (laughs) 
Congresswoman, that would be great. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today, Congresswoman Stephanie Bice of Oklahoma. We appreciate your time. Thanks, Jessica. We're now joined by Colorado Senate Minority Whip Paul Lundeen. Thank you for being with us today. Very much appreciated. And for those of you listening, Paul was a GOPAC emerging leader in 2016 when he was a member of the Colorado House, elected to the state Senate in 2019, where he represents District 9 and currently serves as the Senate Minority Whip. So all eyes are going to be on Colorado this year as Republicans have an opportunity to win big in big blue states like Colorado, where Democrat control legislative chambers are very vulnerable. Let's start by having you tell us a little bit more about the effort you're leading to ensure Republicans win back the majority in the Colorado State Senate. Absolutely. And we're grateful for the national attention. Um, And I believe we are deserving of the national attention. The uh, circumstance in Colorado is remarkable. And and I I don't want to concede the fact that Colorado is a big blue state. Yeah, that's the way the elections appear to have gone recently. But I think the people of Colorado are a center-right people. Um, And I think we've just had some personality issues out here that I think we're resolving now. We've got this tailwind that comes with a midterm election. You know, party out of power always does better. Um, The way I like to characterize it is Joe Biden is doing everything he could possibly do to turn that little tailwind into a zephyr, maybe even a jet stream by November of 22. So we've got that, which is great for everybody across the country. Um, but here in Colorado, we have a new map. Everybody has a new map, but ours was drawn not by the Democrats this time, but it was drawn by a nonpartisan commission. Um, Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliateds drew the map. And that's important here in Colorado. 25% of the electorates registered Republican, 29% registered Democrat, 45% of the electorate in Colorado is registered, unregistered, unaffiliated. And so this map that was drawn gives us a very distinct competitive advantage compared to what we had 10 years ago in 2010 based on the map the Democrats drew. There are five competitive seats as drawn. We only need to win three to flip the Colorado State Senate. And I think with the tailwind based on the numbers, the tailwind that we are hoping we'll get, um, 18 seats will be be um, check done, goal number one, 19 check done, goal number two, and 20 checked on goal number three. I'd like to see us win 20 seats. Um, It has been a team effort. We're more organized in terms of our people inside the building. The the members of the caucus are, are really leaning into doing the job in a way that we haven't done before. And all of the efforts outside the building, as I like to describe it, our logical partners, the folks who promote and support conservative ideas, are being very thoughtful and very energetic in supporting what we're doing. And we've got three messages that uh, we have been driving home with effect that are resonating not only with the Republican base, but it's resonating with the unaffiliated voters of Colorado, the all-important, I'll call them, unaffiliated voters of Colorado. And even common sense Democrats are liking the way Republicans are talking because, quite frankly, (laughs) life's gotten a little bit miserable here in Colorado over the last several years under 3D, Democrat control of governor's office, the House, and the Senate. Tell us what races are kind of your top targets in the Senate this election cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Let me describe those five competitive seats. They're sprinkled around the exurbs of Denver. They're not the suburbs. They're the next ring out. And then one down in Pueblo, Senate District 3 down in Pueblo, is um, always been a, a unique and interesting 
um, seat. We've got a candidate down there who is a uh, veteran. Pueblo is a heavily Hispanic community, a Hispanic. And like Ronald Reagan, this particular candidate's a former Democrat. And we think that that will give us extra support down in Senate District 3 down in Pueblo. Then there's three seats that ring around Denver, kind of like I said, the exurbs of Denver. Senate 27, which is Southeast Aurora. Don't have a settled candidate there. We've got two great candidates who will be running in the primary. Our primary here in uh, Colorado is June 28th. It'll either be Tom Kim or Julie Marie Shepard. Either of them would be great candidates coming on through. And they've, um, you know, I've got a, a Reagan theme going here. They've committed to honor the Reagan's 11th commandment, speak no ill of another Republican, build the brand and, and talk about the three messages that we know are resonating with the people of Colorado. Then out on the west side of the Denver exurbs, out in Arvada and Jefferson County, a fellow named Tim Walsh is running in Senate District 20. Um, successful businessman, really can connecting well with the people of his district. Then on the north side of Denver up near Thornton, young lady named Courtney Potter in Senate 24. She has won um, recently a school district, which almost precisely overlays the Senate district. And so she's back rerunning in a district that uh, people have pulled the lever for her within the last two years on one of our three key messages. And so we feel really strongly about that. And then Coal country out in the northwest corner of Colorado, Senate District 8. We've got a great candidate there, a young professional, Matt Solomon's his name, Senate District 8. And we believe he is going to deliver the goods out in uh, the northwest corner of Colorado. I'd call it coal country, but the Democrats are doing everything they can to kill coal. Right. So polls are showing Republicans in Colorado are, are leading on the legislative generic ballot and, and President Biden's approval rating is sinking. Republicans are up and, and Biden's on the slide. How do you anticipate President Biden's agenda affecting how Colorado Democrats vote this year? And and I mean, and you mentioned the unaffiliated folks as well. So tell us what, you know, what particularly the Dems you think will be doing and, and you know, the effect of the or shall. I call it the Biden effect will have on them and the unaffiliated voters. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Biden effect is enormous. I think we had a new CPI, a consumer price index print of eight and a half percent inflation. I'm old enough to remember Jimmy Carter and the misery index. And quite frankly, with the Fed ratcheting up interest rates, it's possible we tip over into an economic recession. Next thing you know, we're going to have inflation plus unemployment, and people are going to be in even more pain than they're already in. I mean, here in Colorado, home prices are up 67% over the last two years. Rent prices are up 46% over the last two years. And gasoline is up 130% more than doubled since last December. And so people are feeling the pain in their pocketbook. Uh, Meanwhile, my Democrat colleagues are growing the state budget dramatically faster than the real economy is growing. And that just increases the pain. And what's happening is both at the national level, Biden is trying to pretend that it's Putin's inflation. No, it's Joe Biden's inflation. He's the one who's delivered that to us. Here in Colorado, the governor 
And the Democrat members of the legislature, they're saying, oh, you know, those all those fees that we put on you in the last two or three years, we're just going to take a pause on that. They are actively saying we want to pause some of the fees and, and uh, tax increases and fee increases that they put on the people of Colorado. My response back and the Republican response back to that is, as people are suffering in the misery of economic challenge, if it's a bad idea, so bad that you need to pause it, we ought to get rid of it altogether. And oh, by the way, Republicans didn't want those fee increases in the first place. And so there is a resonance where the people of Colorado are looking squarely at the Democrat Party saying, you're the ones who've done this to us. And Republicans, all along, we've been trying to fight for more affordable life, smaller government, lower taxes, lower fees, less uh, increases of regulatory burden that causes price increases on everything we need to use. So I would say the common sense unaffiliateds and even some of the common sense Democrats realize it's the Democrat party that has put us in the place we're in here in Colorado. And that uh, them chickens is going to come home to roost this November is the way I see it. Which will be a, a wonderful, wonderful thing for the state of Colorado. And, you know, for folks that are listening, tell us what your favorite part of, of kind of the the ground game and the ground operation that goes into running for a state Senate district, like what would your favorite part be? And and give us a little bit of a look at what that's like to Joe public listening to this podcast that's interested maybe in running for state Senate one day. Yeah, absolutely. The thing I like most about a state legislative district, certainly the districts are of the size here in Colorado that you can actually walk a House district easily, and you can walk a Senate district with some effort. I represent about 180,000 people. You can get out and knock on the doors. And quite frankly, after you've knocked on a few hundred, then a, a couple thousand, then several thousand doors, you get a really good sense of what the people are thinking about, what the people care about. And that gives me energy. I believe that gives a lot of the Republican candidates we've got out there. It's going to feed them because they're going to get a little positive feedback with every conversation they have with people saying, look, life is unaffordable here in Colorado. I'm glad to hear Republicans are doing something about that. Two, my neighborhood is less safe than it was a few years back when the Democrats have given us all this Democrat control and these policies that have made it harder for law enforcement to do their job and keep neighborhoods and people safe. And three, the third thing people, when I'm out knocking on doors now, they really care about parents care about having authority over their child's education. They don't like the way government is increasingly intruding into their authority as a parent over what their child's education looks like. Right. You mentioned it just slightly, um, you know, getting out in your district, knocking on doors. Have you seen an increase in Republican voter registration? And kind of walk us through what trends you've seen this cycle. It's really interesting. I haven't seen an increase. And of course, we always have registration efforts. But what I'm sensing and what we're getting is a lot of positive response among the registered unaffiliated voters to the Republican message. The Democrats, several months ago, realizing that it was an even numbered year and therefore there was going to be an election here in Colorado, started talking like Republicans. But it didn't stick because the people have seen Democrats over the last number of years where they controlled the governor's office, they controlled the House, and they controlled the Senate. 
the people have seen them take policy actions that have increased the cost of living in Colorado and have made neighborhoods more dangerous. So the reality is it's the message that's resonating regardless of voter registration. It's resonating with the electors, the people who are going to vote in the 2022 election. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that that is resonating not only in, in Colorado, but you and I both know it's resonating all around the country. So how will winning back the state Senate in Colorado help congressional races also on the ballot and in turn help take back the House in November? Yeah, absolutely. I, we've got some really high quality candidates running for the congressional seats out here. Colorado is one of the states that gained a seat. We had seven congressional seats previously. We have eight now. One of my colleagues in the Senate, Barb Kirkmeyer is running for the eighth congressional seat. Um, she she is a firebrand. She is a fighter. She is smart. Um, she understands the job of representing the people, and she does it with a, a verb and energy and a power. We are seeing that among our congressional candidates, and quite frankly, several two of these Senate districts that we'll be working in so heavily overlay parts of the the two competitive uh, congressional districts out here that I think we're going to fight good fights in. And so I think as we walk for Senate candidates, it will also have a positive impact for those uptick at congressional races as well. That's awesome. And and just to expound a little bit on Barb Kirkmeyer, she, much like yourself, we're very proud to have her be part of our emerging leaders family. And she, she's, a, she's a fantastic candidate and we're happy to, to see her running for the U.S. House. What's your favorite season in Colorado? <laughs> Election season. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Actually, Amen. <laughs> Actually, that's coincidental. Uh, I, you know, part of the reason I, I, I'm a son of the West, part of the reason I, I love Colorado so much is I'm an outdoorsman, a hunter and fisherman, and I enjoy the fall, not only because it's election season, but it's also hunting season. So that that is my absolute favorite season. But the wonderful thing about Colorado is we have four spectacular seasons. You've got autumn, we've got winter, which is sunny, 330 days of sunshine a year, folks. Colorado isn't as cold as people think because we get a lot of sunshine. So beautiful winter, lots of skiing, of course. And then you've got uh, spring where the wildflowers are just outrageous across the uh, hills and valleys of the mountains. And, and summer is very temperate here in Colorado. It gets warm, sun goes down, and it cools down. We have wonderful evenings as well. So a little, little bit of a chamber of commerce moment there for, <laughs> for Colorado. But it is truly beautiful with four incredible seasons here in the state I love. What, one of my favorite states, too. And before I let you go, any final thoughts? Go team red. I, I believe that uh, that our partners, you folks at GoPack, our partners with all of the different groups that are coming alongside of us here in Colorado are going to lead us to exactly where I'm trying to make my team stay focused. And boy, they are focused like a laser on flipping the Colorado Senate and changing the political conversation in Colorado, because that will give us the opportunity to change the policy conversation. We can roll back this unaffordable quality of life that the Democrats have given us. We can return safety to our neighborhoods, and we can give parents the authority to direct the education and upbringing of their children, not government, because that's the way it should be. I love it. Senator Paul Lending, thank you so much for uh, taking a few minutes out of your busy schedule this election season to talk to us. It's appreciated, and go get them. My my pleasure. We are so grateful for our friends and partners at GoPack. You go get them, folks. You're doing the good work that we all need to do together.
David and Adam, we are excited to discuss current polling trends in today's political environment with both of you. Those of you listening, David Winston is the president of the Winston Group, a Washington, D.C. strategy and message design firm. Winston has served as a strategic advisor to Senate and House Republican leadership for the past 15 years. Also joining us, Adam Geller, the founder and CEO of the Republican polling firm National Research Incorporated. And to note, in 2016, Adam was one of the pollsters for the Donald J. Trump for President campaign. Thank you both for joining us today. Glad to be here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. What are the broad trends you're seeing in polling nationally? Adam? The trend right now, as we sit here today, is looking pretty encouraging for Republicans. I would love to say it's because we're so brilliant. And of course, part of that is true. But the other part is the Democrats have just done this incredible left-wing overreach, and it's just pissing off a lot of people in the middle. And so what you get is where we sit right now. Now, of course, the election's a long time away, but at least from what I'm seeing, all of this you know, radical left overreach on the part of the Democrats is having uh, pretty significant implications in the polls. And I'd have to pretty much agree. Let me just sort of give a little bit more granularity to that. And let's start off with the basic problem that I think Joe Biden is having. One of the critical reasons that he won um, in terms of 2020 was because he improved with independence. He ended up winning them by 13. At this point, when you take a look at his job approval, he's in many surveys, he's minus 30 in terms of independence. And, and so he has gone from a situation where he had a majority coalition kind of put together in 2020. And that majority coalition, because of that minus 30 in terms of job approval amongst independents, now isn't there. So he doesn't have a majority coalition in place. And that's a real problem for Democrats as they're looking at this and towards the fall. And when you look at some of the sub issues, it gets even worse looking at the handling of the economy, crime and safety, variety of things. So the Democratic Party has a challenge in that the majority coalition that they're all assuming that they have at this point as they try to do policy just isn't there. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't recoup it, um, but given the strategy they're implementing, just assuming they have it in place um, is very problematic for them. And as Adam identified, that's certainly an opportunity for Republicans. See, Winston just explained the point way more articulately uh, and, and, and brilliantly. But it's the same, right? It's just, it's the people in the middle. It's it's the same reason why Trump was able to win states like Michigan and Wisconsin in, in 2016 and how Biden was able to sort of uh, reclaim those folks. And, uh, you know, to Dave's point, and it's exactly the same thing that not only am I seeing, but I mean, the public polls who, you know, we can talk about those all day, but the public polls are even reflecting a lot of that as well. What impacts will independents have in the upcoming midterm elections, especially in states with closed primaries? Well, I, in, in, terms of, in terms of closed primaries, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what, what that dynamic is going to look like. But I mean, l- l- let me just go back to one fundamental contrast just to give you a sense of just how important independents are going to be in this election. Actually, l- let me give you one other number first. In the 2020 election, according to exit polls. 17% of the electorate were liberal Democrats and 26% were conservative Republicans. So the, the, the one piece of good news on the Republican side is that clearly 
our core base is larger than their core base. Having said that, when you add those two numbers together, that adds up only to 43%. So that means 57% of the electorate is something else besides a liberal Democrat or a conservative Republican. And that's part of the the, the challenge in terms of looking at independence. And the reason I, I, I focus on that is if you go back to one of the big transitions that occurred in terms of the electorate, when we lost in 2006, the majority, um, we lost independence by 18 in, t- in 2006. Um, in 2010, when we regained the majority, we won independence by 19, right? And that gives you a sense of just how independence can drive whatever the outcome of that election. And in 2010, it wasn't just simply that we won by 19 and, and we did well. That was also the redistricting election, which allowed us to put lines in place for the rest of the decade. So it was a real fundamental shift that, that occurred. And independence, ultimately, because neither party base, as I was just describing, is large enough to produce a majority, you're going to have to build a majority coalition. And that's why they just play this dominant role. Again, going back to one other election in terms of that just happened in 2020 among independents in Virginia, uh, Biden won by 19. Youngkin in this last election won them by nine. And that was a critical switch in terms of taking a um, a blue state and turning it red. Adam. Yeah, I mean, I I, I completely agree with uh, with with David's point. You know, obviously, you know, in in primaries, look, I, I live and work in New Jersey, and the danger in a in a reasonably well in a relatively blue state like New Jersey is when you talk about close primaries and you're talking about a very very energized electorate. You know, the balance that we Republicans have is that in some states especially in bluish districts or purple districts you know the there is an art to nominating a nominee who can who can be viable and win in a general election in some instances i believe that you know both sides tend to either overstate this or to sort of change it to fit their narrative but at the end of the day when when you know to your question about primaries there always is a challenge somebody who can capture the republican energy who can capture the anger that is out there uh the frustration on economic or cultural issues, but also can be can be a very viable and strong candidate in a general election when when everything kind of shifts and you know it it becomes something to David's point of who can win that middle, who can who can win those independent voters. And so I think that that to me is how I would look at, you know, sort of that question that you posed as far as the primaries. Gotcha. And, you know, kind of along those lines, in 2016, President Trump had a way of really, Adam, you just talked about it, really compelling the the independents to, to swing and, and vote for him nationally, right, which led him to win the presidency. Kind of along those lines, what do you both think, and, and we'll start with you, Adam, and then, and then go to David, but like, how much weight does President Trump's endorsement as we see him getting active politically endorsing candidates around the country, how much weight does that have, do you think? And what what kind of advice would you have for a candidate in a Republican primary that doesn't end up with a Trump endorsement? What can they do to win? I think that in the world in which we live, in the world in which we inhabit among Republican voters, 
the Trump endorsement is a big endorsement. It takes with it a lot of energy, potentially a lot of donations and so forth, and, and a relatively easy message to an electorate in a Republican primary who is very receptive to that. Now, in terms of candidates who don't get the Trump endorsement, I think that it's important to kind of take a look at the people who, you know, certainly like and approve of and, and feel favorable toward Donald Trump and those who like and approve of and feel favorable toward some of those same policies that Trump champions. So I think that the policies become really, really important. It is hard, if not impossible, to be a quote unquote never Trumper in a Republican primary in today's political environment. I could be wrong and maybe I'm overstating it. But I think that it comes down to, at the end of the day, the policies that President Trump embraces and, and communicates on. We can talk about a lot of them. We don't have to go through the entire list, but on economic, on trade, on border security, and so forth, those are a lot of the check-off-the-box issues and messages that Republican voters are, are, are thirsty for and are open to. And so whether or not a candidate receives the official Trump endorsement, from a messaging perspective, that's where most of the electorate is in a Republican primary. And I guess I would just conclude by saying, of course, depending on the geography and other factors in a district or in a state, I would just urge you know any Republican to sort of make sure that they don't overdo it in places where they shouldn't overdo it because you know on the assumption you know you don't want to look past one race and look at the next race but on the assumption you make it to the general you just really don't want to um, disqualify yourself from being competitive in a general election and it's a tricky balance but it really varies according to really the dynamics of the race um, and and like David said before on a granular level. Uh, depending on geography and other other considerations, each race is just going to be a little bit different. Absolutely. A bit of an understatement, Adam. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, I'm an understated um, guy, you know. <laughs> Let me, I, I'm going to make some distinctions here. One, in terms of the policy side of it, I, I mean, I think one of the things that is emerging is this sense of uh, the, the overall, and Adam alluded to this earlier, that something, the direction we're going policy-wise has not been particularly positive um, under Biden. And, and an example in terms of one of the key policies that got passed uh, in, in, in terms of prior to Biden um, was the tax cut bill. And interestingly enough, after everybody was claiming what this was, how bad this was going to be for the deficit, it ended up being spending is the problem for the deficit because we are now at record revenues in terms of what the tax bill generated in terms of the way it was put together and the amount of revenues coming into the government. So from a policy side, there are lots of things that occurred in this and, and the Trump administration that are real positives in terms of Republicans pursuing um, and engaging on. Having said that, Trump himself, in terms of these endorsements, I don't, I don't think it's clear at this point. And a lot of the districts where there isn't a general election to worry about, then obviously the primary plays this oversized role. And at least in many of those districts, um, it seems to be that that having the Trump endorsement um, is better than not having it. But I think right now the, 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 the jury is still out a, a bit in terms of as you look at particularly some of these Senate races and gubernatorial races, obviously the Georgia a governor race is going to be a big determinant in terms of just how people perceive what uh, the Trump endorsement means. But we've seen him weigh in on two uh, senatorial races, and we'll see how those turn out, in both in Pennsylvania and Ohio, and see what happens. I think to some degree, um, Trump 
and his political folks have taken some level of risk in terms of those endorsements. And I think it's it's unclear. I think the president ran into some difficulties with his initial reaction in terms of the Ukraine. Um, he's clearly tried to sort of rework through those initial statements. But overall, I think in terms of, of, of where people perceive things, having somebody endorse you and how you manage that is always sort of beneficial. And I think Yunkin is a good example of that. Absolutely, he is. Moving to swing states, we're seeing some Democrat Senate candidates such as Mark Kelly starting to distance themselves from President Biden. What message does this send to voters on both sides of the aisle regarding the future of the Democratic Party? Are independents weary of a seemingly unified party? Mark Kelly is taking a look at public opinion, and I'm sure he's looking at at the job approval that uh, the president has in his state. And when you look at sort of the coherence of the 42 argument in, in terms of where we are in terms of COVID and illegal immigrants and those illegally coming across the border, you know, I, he's just working through what it should look like. And, and particularly in terms of that issue, you've seen a lot of Democrats break from uh, Biden, a significant amount. But the other element here, too, is when you have a president of the United States who's minus 30 in terms of job approval with independence, and you're in a state like Arizona where you've got to build a majority coalition, you're thinking through, how do I win this election? Um, and winning the election may entail taking significantly different positions than the leader of your party at this point, Biden. So I I guess I'm not particularly surprised by it. But having said that, um, that says quite a bit about where the Democratic Party is at this point. Adam, what do you think? Once again, I find myself agreeing with David. I would just say, you know, that that as much as we as we sometimes and and I won't say we all do this, but I do this, wring my hands about where we are as the Republican Party. The reality is, is the Democrats are, are having their own reckoning right now. This is something that I, I, I don't think is going to be going away. Look, there's Biden signaled he was going to run again, and this sends these waves through the Democratic Party. There is a very energetic, progressive wave in this party. They're not going to go quietly, and they're going to only sort of continue to flex their political muscles. And it's going to result in, in what I can see to be deep fissures in the Democratic Party. And so you, t- you, you look at some states, like you mentioned, Arizona and others and you you have these democratic candidates who are i think being held hostage in some instances by the progressive wing of their party and they find themselves in a very very difficult position i read a really brilliant article uh, an opinion piece by peggy noonan where she talked about not just the policies that are coming from the biden administration but just the way the communication the way in which they're they're talking to voters and i know david and i spend a lot of time thinking about these things too but just the communication style you know the kind of really talking down to voters is just another reason. You know, we always talk about the policies, but, but when you think about the communication style coming from the White House, voters feel like they're they're being <laughs> insulted and talked down to. And so that kind of, to me, that's part of this this recipe, part of this stew, if you will, that goes into where we find some of these Democratic leaders like, you know, Senator Kelly and so forth, it's just another sort of problem that they're they're having to deal with. If I can add to that, one of the things that's been interesting about the Democratic Party, when you take a look at like 2006 versus where they are now, in 2006 from exit polls, moderates outnumber liberals in the Democratic Party by a 51 to 38 margin, 13 points. So it was a clearly center-left party, but it was still more center than left. 
Now, in terms of 2020, um, liberals outnumbered conservatives by a 46 to 43 margin plus three. So this is a party that's moving to the left as the country, by the way, moves to the right. To get, just again, to, to give you a sense, um, in 2016, conservatives outnumbered liberals by nine points. In 2020, conservatives outnumbered liberals by 15. So as to Adam's point, um, as the, as the country moves slightly to the right, the Democratic Party moved hard left. And for some reason, um, you know, they think the 2020 election was some profound, overwhelming consensus in terms of their direction, even though if you noticed, um, we actually picked up seats in the House and the Senate was evenly split. And they just have completely misread what the 2020 election um, results meant. Couldn't agree more. I, I want to just pick up on, on one thing. So then deep within the Democratic Party, when you're looking at those ideological breaks and all that stuff. If you take a look and 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 we just kind of play around sometimes with labels and what we've sort of uh, what we've known for a, a little bit now but it's becoming more and more clear and more and more mainstream is that there's a difference between a voter who considers themselves to be a progressive or a leftist versus a liberal, believe it or not. Now, we sometimes as Republicans interchange the terms progressive, liberal, same thing, right? But it's really not. So within the Democratic Party, a, a leftist or a progressive, they don't care for liberals because you see liberals are institutionalists. Liberals still buy into the institutions of the country in a way that a progressive or a leftist does not. So when you talk about uh, the fissures in the Democratic Party, I'm telling you that it's not just going to be the centrists versus the left. It's going to be the left and then the far left. It does kind of um, play into the, the, the points that David was making. But taking that magnifying glass to the Democratic Party and to the sort of um, inner workings therein is pretty fascinating. And again, something that is not going to be going away anytime soon. But but I, I could not agree more with David's larger point about this this kind of you know wrong conclusion about the 2020 election, thinking somehow that they were handed a mandate, which of course they weren't. Right. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in November. Along those lines, and this will be my final question to both of you, should voters be hesitant to believe public opinion polls? Yes. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of reasons why I think that they should, but, but uh, look, there are some public opinion polls, public polls that are absolutely fine. And then there are some that are poorly constructed. And then I dare say there are some that I believe, and I, I don't, I won't put words into anybody else's mouth except my own, but I believe that there are times when public polls are weaponized and are not just poorly constructed, but they're maliciously constructed. Public polls can affect everything from turnout to fundraising to God knows what else. And so polling has become more difficult to do because of low response rates and, and all this other stuff that we can spend a lot of time with. But when, when you make an investment in a public poll, there's still a fantastic tool to not just know where public opinion is, but, but how to shape public opinion and, and how messages will impact and so forth. But the public opinion 
polling that's out there, the the public polls are just, to me, more of a distraction at best. And at worst, again, they're just something that's that's malicious and weaponized and designed to conduct almost psychological operations on the electorate. And so, uh, unfortunately, the garbage ones make the good ones suffer as well. I believe that, you know, for example, the Wall Street Journal poll, public poll, I think it's one of the best public polls out there. We can name polls that we think are great, and they certainly exist, but some of them, some of them are just really awful. And uh, I can go on, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. I'm definitely curious to hear David's opinion on these. So am I. So uh, I'm going to give you two pieces of this. And, and, and the first one is like, so how can you sort of begin to assess whether the poll you're looking at is a good one or not? And it's real simple. If you can't look at the survey and understand what percentage are Republicans, independents, Democrats, what percentage are liberal, moderates, conservative, race, education, age, gender. If you can't clearly see the demographics laid out, and there are a lot of surveys that do not do that, then your immediate reaction is, why am I not being told the composition of what this survey is in terms of the people in it? And I will tell you that you can see some surveys where suddenly Democrats, you know, have a margin of plus 12, even though when you take a look at what happened in terms of the exit polls for 2020, the margin was only plus one for Dems. And that was one of the reasons why you saw at least so many of the national polls off in terms of 2020. So that's, so, so that's, uh, I would encourage everybody, if you can't see clearly what the demographics are, question the survey you're looking at. So that's one. Two, and I think Adam, would agree, we're, we're at a very difficult moment in terms of, of dealing with and, and getting public opinion um, because we're changing a lot of platforms. Um, you know, again, 20 years ago, everything was landline. And, and so it was real simple. We, and we were using um, random digit dialing to get a random sample. And now we're moving much more toward online. Um, even cell phones are, are being changed challenging and problematic because at least with landlines before you had a person at home focused on your questions um, with a cell phone, they might be in a car, they, they, they might be in a restaurant, they might be walking around. So we're moving more to online. What that means is that people have to wait to that since they're, since they're not, they're non-random samples. Um, and so therefore you're just trying to build up enough of a cell size within groups. So when you wait, everything that it comes out to um, what you believe the electorate is going to look like. So in a lot of cases, um, what you're dealing with, particularly when you're dealing with with online surveys um, is you're dealing with that individual's perception of what the waiting process should look like. And as a sort of large discipline in terms of, of doing public opinion, there are a lot of people working through a lot of concepts of what that should be. So um, that's the other challenge when you're looking at a survey. Um, that's why you're looking for the demographics, because you want to see what those assumptions were that went into sort of building what the overall results were. It's really, cha- I mean, look, it's challenging for, for those of us who are, who are doing it to sort of assess what everybody else is doing and figure out what we should do. Certainly for the public, if, if we're sort of working through that, um, it's got to be challenging for them to understand who to believe and who not to. In the 2020 election, we were a half a point off in terms of the presidential election, and we were 0.9 off in terms of the uh, the House. So um, at least yeah, I'd like to tell you that that was skill. You know, there are probably some other elements in that, but anyway. Well, no, and that doesn't surprise me. I, I you know, David obviously has a great reputation in this business. We also, you know, again, you know, what we do isn't inexpensive. But when when you make the investment and you get a high quality voter list and you spend a significant amount of time 
looking at past turnout and population and registration and so forth. And you calculate a lot of this stuff before the first phone call or text or online uh, interview is made, uh, you can do a really good job. And so I do I, I, I do want to give a lot of our Republican colleagues credit. I think that as a group, we do a, a really good job and we, we put a lot of time in, in off years and in, you know, before the busy time to really get on the same page and to really be open source about what everybody's seeing out there. And it does work. And the problem is, I guarantee you some public outfit with a poor budget and just wanting to make news and make a splash is just not going to have that same kind of quality output. And they can have these little confabs at the end. Why were all the polls wrong? We can't do that. If Winston doesn't put out, you know, good, accurate polling, Winston's not been doing it very long. Same as Geller. <laughs> You know, right. by the way, hey, Adam, uh, so Adam, you've you you been doing through, it as long as we have you, you know, you kind of know what you're doing. You no, know, and, and Adam, you just walked through a good example of, of a real solid methodological process to sort of work through how do you get to the numbers you need? What does the voter file say? You know, and really right. spending time working through that. And, and that's the sort of effort. And one of the reasons why it does cost is because you have people really having to spend a lot of time understanding that universe, particularly looking at the voter file. And I thought you just did a really nice job of walking through through a good example of methodology. Thank you, David. This has been fascinating and also an honor to, to speak with both of you and kind of get a little bit into the weeds and inside your heads on things. David Winston of the Winston Group, Adam Geller, National Research Incorporated. Thank you both so much. And hopefully we'll have you back on again soon and we can prognosticate a little bit further. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This has been the Go Pack Podcast. Learn how we're educating and electing a new generation of Republican leaders at gopack.org.